So, Berto, in these troubling times, I thought we would just put all this stuff aside and just answer some patron emails and just chat about some regular stuff. What do you say, Berto? Let's do it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carconda. I'm a therapist and a professor. My name is Umberto Castaneda, and I make stay-at-home wellness kits. So this first email is from patron Alexis. We know her. She came to one of our live shows, if you remember her. And she says, regarding the sex education show. So for those who don't know, it's a TV show that I've watched, I think, the first couple episodes. You've watched, I think, the first season. Yeah. And it's a show about a high school kid who has a mother who's a sex therapist or a sex educator of some sort. And he ends up becoming a unlicensed sex therapist in his high school because so many of his classmates are suffering from sex-related issues. And there's all this misinformation out there. And he's, um, he's, he's also kind of nerdy and you know, feels has some social anxiety. But now he has this, you know, this purpose that you – know, anyway, so right. it's this, that's the premise of the show and hijinks ensue. And it's, it's basically a comedy. Um, regarding the sex education show, one of the things that frustrated me was the portrayal of how out of touch the main character's mother was when she spoke so openly about sex. Okay, just chiming in here again. <laughs> the mother is actually played by the woman who was uh, Scully on The X-Files. Uh, is that, yeah. Was that her name? Uh, and, yeah. And she – is she British? You know – Oh, is she? Because doesn't she have uh, Jillian a Jillian Anderson? Jillian doesn't she have a British accent in that show? Oh, well, I yeah, but I didn't think she was really British. Yeah, maybe she is. But you know, sometimes you find out like, oh, they were always you know like the guy yeah, like the, Christian Bale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, like the guy in the Wire, the the main police oh, officer. Yeah. He's he's like uh, from the UK. Anyway, yeah. The um, and then also um, the other guy from the Wire. Uh, uh, Idris Alba oh, right. is yeah. also from the UK. But anyway, um, the mother in this TV show, she is extremely open with her son about sex and will talk openly about sex toys and positions and uh, her own sexuality. And I think he even overhears her talking with her clients about sexual things. And he's, uh, you know, younger and awkward and it doesn't feel super comfortable talking with his mom about these things, um, and they they kind of portray that. But my take of the way the writers and directors and actors are are telling that story is like she's just liberated up, you know, to the highest degree, and we should all kind of aspire, at least in some ways, towards her liberated sexual, you know, sex positive attitude. Is that your take on that on the mom, the mom character? Well, I do agree with that part. However, I think there is this aspect, which is maybe what they're getting at with the question, but um, she's not only liberated, she is also a therapist. And I think it does show sort of a lack of awareness of the the mental impact of her liberatedness and practice on her teenage son. Uh, now, having grown up with a... a a father who was a psych, um, psychiatrist, um, who was a child psychiatrist. I can attest that, you know, just because you're a child psychiatrist doesn't mean that you're always, you know, 
doing the right perfect things for your child. Uh, but in any case, I do think that she being a therapist and a sex therapist, I don't know, she, she might, she could be more aware of like, well, wait a minute. Not every family is this open. Not every child at school has a mother like me. So this might have a certain impact on my child. And maybe I need to do more about talking about that. Maybe I need to do a little bit more privacy with my client. Like those kinds of things, you know? Right. So going on with Alexis's, Alexis's, Alexis email, um, one of the main things that frustrated me was the portrayal of how out of touch the main character's mother was when she spoke so openly about sex. The mom is my favorite character in the show, and while she's not perfect, I loved a lot of her approach to be frank in discussions about sex. A few of my friends who watched the show talked about how awful her parenting was and how she has no boundaries. When I, when I expressed I would hope to approach sex with my children one day um, in the same way, almost everyone made a face and said, said something to the effect of, you might want to rethink that. <laughs> I was very happy when you talked about how awkward society is around sex and how parents are made to feel like they shouldn't approach their kids when it comes to subjects of sex. That and that it's bad and weird and doesn't respect quote unquote boundaries. It made me feel very empowered in my beliefs. I'm curious if you had any perspective on how to challenge ideas like this as an average person who isn't a parent or a therapist when talking with other people about this topic. Berto, what do you think? You know, I, I, I cannot disagree that I think the, the normal quote unquote approach to uh, sexuality is awful. It's been historically awful. I mean, seriously, right? Like we have, I don't know how far back in time or what kind of societies you'd have to look at where the approach wasn't awful. Um, animals, you know, don't seem to have so many hangups. Uh, but we sit here and we are, I'm not even going to talk about the extremes because the extremes can get so horrific in even in current times. But I'm just talking about like we have kids who like they start having their period and they think they're dying because no one's told them anything. Or we have kids who have like their first um, wet dream and they are freaking out because they think there's something medically wrong with them, right? Uh, we have any number of states in this country where you, you're supposed to like not think about it, not talk about it, certainly never have any sex, not talk about contraception or whatever. And then they have like crazy numbers of pregnancies and uh, teenage abortions and all these things. So yeah, no, I think it's it's terrible. So could we benefit from a more open, more uh, a progressive way to approach sexuality and conversations? Absolutely. I do. I do believe so. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and another thing that is common that I'll just provide is that a lot of people who are born with vaginas will never look at their vagina because they're uh, ashamed of the way it looks or they don't even want to look at it because they're afraid of what they're going to see or mm. they, they think they're weird or creepy for looking at it. And they uh, they might be 35 years old and barely have any uh, knowledge of what's going on down there for them. Now, yeah. not everyone has to do that, of course, but um, I would imagine that most people would at least be curious from time to time, maybe like once a year, like, oh, I wonder, you know, does it still look the same? What's going on down there? Yeah. And um, to have a physician who 
you know, occasionally checks things out down there to have it be so much so much more intimate with with your intimate parts is, um, you know, it's it's upsetting and it, because of the shame that that we give people. Anyway, so but your main question here, Alexis, is how do you talk with people? You know, how how do you change people's perspective? You're you're like, hey, um, I think that we all could benefit with more sex positivity, including around our kids. And there's all these people around me that with sex negativity, you know, how am I supposed to react? I, I kind of want to change their mind because I, I, I want everyone to be more sex positive about that. Um, so, yeah, it's really hard to change people's minds, especially in the immediate uh, situation. Usually what I think about is what we used to call back in the day, planting seeds. So, Back in the day, I used to treat a lot of teenagers that didn't really want to be in therapy, or at the very least, they didn't really want to change things about them. And as therapists, it was really hard to change people in their behavior, and it was hard to cope with as well because you just feel like you're beating a head, your head up against the wall. And the And I'm talking about things like you know, just saying positive things about yourself was, was a hard thing for, for a lot of teenagers to accept and do. And the things that we would tell ourselves is like, we're planting seeds. We're planting seeds when they're 14 that might grow into something by the time they're 25, for example. Um, so don't expect, you know, if you plant a seed, you don't stand over it and go like, where's the plant? You know, it's like, you, <laughs> you gotta wait. Um, and you might not ever see the growth because by the time you terminate with this client, um, there won't be any noticeable growth, but it will grow if you keep planting those seeds. So that that's one way to think about it. And I just wrote down this possible thing that you might be able to say. Uh, this would be said if you had the time and the sort of space to say it. You might say, when I was growing up, I heard a lot of messages of shame about sex. And that made me feel ashamed of my sexuality at times. And I, don't, and I don't want my children to go through that. I want them to feel free to talk about things if they want. I want them to be okay with their sexuality. I'm not going to invade their space and make them feel uncomfortable and do things that, you know, they don't want to do. But I do plan on modeling a healthy and liberated attitude about sexuality and um, an attitude that says, you know what, sex is good and it's okay to talk about it. So that might be something to say, right? You're, you're, you're saying, yeah, it's true. There are boundaries and I'm not going to invade people's spaces, but um, I am going to have an attitude of openness and liberation that is inviting to ch- my children that allows them to feel good about their sexuality and also is open to them asking me questions or expressing themselves or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's just, but it's, no matter how liberated one is, there's society, which is going to overwhelm any influence you have over your child. There's just so much propaganda in our society that is sex negative. Um, you know, TMI and ew, that's, you know, <laughs> that's creepy. And I mean, even to the level, that, just as an example of this, that that might seem very relatable to people is I grew up in the 70s wearing shorts that were extremely short uh, (laughs) compared to today. And I never really acclimated to the fashion change. You know, I I acclimated to other fashion changes, I suppose. But but that was one fashion change that 
or fashion element that I just retained. And to this day, um, I feel extremely comfortable in extremely short shorts and don't feel like I'm showing too much skin. And when I see people in really short shorts, I'm, it doesn't really trigger anything in me. There are some people, and I've heard people say this, that shorts should be below the knee. They, you know, that anything above the knee (laughs) with shorts is, is showing too much. Now they won't say showing too much skin. They'll just say, ew, it's creepy. You know, you know, uh, what are you doing? It's, it's like, you know, (laughs) I guess it would be culturally for me as if someone was walking around in a banana hammock or something. And so, (laughs) so, uh, so that is sex shaming, you know, for, for, for me, when I walk around in, and they're not even, I'll accommodate. So I'll go halfway down my thigh with my shorts. I'll still get people going, ew, short shorts. And I'm like, you're just shaming people's fucking bodies at that point. You're just shaming. You're, you're basically saying like the closer your eyes get to my genitals is like a really <laughs> bad thing, you know? And, and it's like, that's a very... Uh, now, now, ninety nine percent of the listeners right now are like, "But I agree, it is gross to me." Well, you have to ask yourself, "Why is it gross to you?" Now, there's nothing wrong with having a fashion sense, or, or you know, I don't, I don't like that haircut because it, I don't like mullets, for example, or I don't like tails, or I don't like mohawks, or something. You know, that's different. That's just that's fashion. It's also a little bit judgy of other people, but you know, that's fashion. This is ninety percent of the reason why people are averse to short shorts. I am positive it's because of sex negativity. We've almost become more sex negative as as society has progressed from the seventies in a lot of ways, and I don't appreciate it. You know, if you don't want to wear short shorts, great, that's your fashion. But if someone right. else like me wears short shorts, like. Give me a fucking break. It's just my goddamn thighs. You know what I mean? Like, what's wrong? Yeah. Like, it's okay for me to show my calf, but my thigh and my knee is, like, disgusting to you and I should cover it up? I, f- I find that to be extremely sex negative. And this sort of stuff is everywhere. You know, like, there, it's, it's pervasive. There are people that are really quite enlightened who have fully got on board with sex negativity in our culture. Yeah. Next email from Anonymous Patron, he writes, I was wondering what your thoughts were on stage fright or maybe performance anxiety. I saved this email just for you, Berto, because this is a very good one. I recently started seeing a therapist last year to deal with some severe depression and had embedded its that had embedded itself pretty deeply over the last several years. My therapist has been a huge help in that regard, and I've been wondering how successful therapy is at treating stage fright, either the cause or its symptoms. I was very serious about music in my youth, but ultimately gave up my passion after never being able to conquer my fear, self-consciousness, and physical symptoms that would impair my natural abilities while playing in front of people. Fast forward around 15 years, I took up my instrument again as a form of self-prescribed therapy, and to have a healthy hobby, but have found that my old demons still haunt me. I thought I would care. I thought I wouldn't care anymore after all these years. But when I sense someone looking or listening intently to me, the physical symptoms come back sweaty or clammy in places, blushing, trembling, even though I can stay calm on the surface. I'm not sure what my therapist thinks 
when I talk about it, but I get the impression they think it goes deeper than simply pre-performance jitters or a matter of just practicing more. Everything I had read about stage fright seems to indicate no one knows the cause or cure and that you just have to manage the symptoms or take beta blockers or something. Do you think there are deeper underlying issues at play here? I should add that I can quickly trigger myself to feel similarly on the spot when almost with almost any performance-like activity. Dancing is its own kind of hell, but luckily that doesn't come up too often. Music is important to me, though, and this condition taints it for me. Any thoughts would be appreciated, uh, and also thank you for the podcast. Berto, what do you think? Yeah, this is, this is such a real thing. Uh, look, I am someone that loves being in front of people talking, uh, and I... You know, I, I used to have no problems raising my hand constantly in class, calling me, calling me. I'll I'll talk, <laughs> uh, and I used to put on little performances for my family and blah blah blah. But it doesn't matter when I had to perform in front of people. My music that supposedly I had rehearsed, <clears throat> uh, even when I was well rehearsed, which wasn't always, it still frightened me. And it frightened me in a way that I couldn't control. Basically, I would start feeling uh, definitely sweaty and panicky. And I would get this sense like like everything in my body was conspiring against me. Like I'm like my, my throat would start kind of freezing up. Like my muscles felt, felt like they were constricting. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to even sing. And then uh, I would get up there and I, I, I'd be really uh, like stressed because like I'm trying to plug in all the instruments and 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 you know if if you've ever performed at a club especially if you're first starting out uh there's so many things that you have to worry about and then I would make matters worse for myself because I when I first started playing with a band I would have all these extra accoutrement like lights that I would need to plug in and I was trying to make it really like a, a fancy show but but I hadn't mastered the basics yet. So on, in addition to everything else, I was stressed about having to get everything right. And then the show would start and I would like worry because I'm going to forget my lyrics. And and by worrying, I actually did forget some of my lyrics. And then that, my voice was going to crack and then it would crack because I was worried. And then, oh my gosh, it was horrible. Uh, and I, that went on for, I don't know, a long time, years. And over time, I think by doing it enough, I started getting to a more functional place. But even nowadays, years and years later, after playing so many times and all these things, if I have to put a show on, um, unless I am super, super, super well rehearsed and it's a totally, totally friendly audience, I will still feel a lot of those feelings. It's really hard for it to go. Yeah, I, I, you and I have performed on stage in a variety of contexts for ever since we, I mean, that was how we met was we were, we started in a band together. And I would say that in the beginning, you were way more comfortable on stage than I was. I have massive performance anxiety, anonymous patron. So I, um, I can, I could talk for a long time about performance anxiety and all the different manifestations of it. And I can totally relate because 
the you're, you're sitting at home and you're you're doing your thing on by yourself and you're like okay this is going pretty good you get on stage you get the jitters you forget what you're supposed to do and everything comes out wrong and it, and it just ruins the whole experience you know you're you, you just wish you could just do what you were doing in your bedroom on stage and it just, it rarely worked out that way and i would say in the beginning you and me and uh, um for for you and me berto you were more comfortable on stage than I was, and, and I was just utterly terrified. I do not know what the hell happened over time. The only thing I can think of is that um, that I got better with it was just repetition. But also I think just – I think growing older for me and I think for a lot of people, there's just certain things that just mellow out for me. And I, I just find myself just not giving a fuck anymore. And <laughs> – and, you know, if you would have asked me when I was 35, if I gave a fuck, I'd be like, no, I don't give a fuck. But I don't think my body was there yet. I think I feel like at the age of 49, my body doesn't give a fuck anymore, <laughs> you know. And, <laughs> and yeah. to some extent, that's actually kind of a, a down. There's downside to that where I, I'll be in meetings at the university and I'll just start spouting shit that later on i'm like i probably shouldn't be spouting that much um but anyway so yeah i can totally relate going back for i've always thought i had this very weird condition that is like a catch-22 where i am massively compelled to get on stage and do things uh probably less so than uberto but definitely you know high on the scale compared to average and yet at the same time i'm probably more prone to performance anxiety than the average person <laughs> as well. It's this, and I and I, I could go into detail, but one of the conceptualizations, at least for me, is that um, when you are when you develop a narcissistic personality trait, as you and I did, we we develop this personality trait as a way of trying to prove our worth to other people. That when we're four years old, five, six years old. We learned through experience that in order to garner attention and love, one of the ways was to uh, be on stage. Well, that uh, promotes this compulsion to get on stage and a sort of fantasy life that is present of just like, well, if I could just get on stage and prove to everyone that that I have worth, um, you know, right. the, this this podcast is actually another version of that because you know it's essentially on stage when we're doing it. Um, but what comes with that is this notion of like, well, if I fuck it up, then I won't be lovable and I won't, and no one will like me and I'll be rejected. So it, so that can create, if you're asking an honest patron for some underlying reason, I don't know if you suffer from this, but the, uh, so the, the same compulsion that, that you have to get on stage also is the same condition that causes a tremendous amount of anxiety about what if you fuck up. And so I, I have a I have a friend, Todd. Um, I don't think you've ever met him. He's, he was a friend from a long time ago. And he was, if you met him, you'd think he was kind of shy. He, you know, he wasn't extroverted much. He was usually the quiet one. And I remember talking with him. He worked at Boeing. He was an engineer. And we were talking, about, I was talking about my performance anxiety. And he was like, he was like, yeah, I can't relate to that, you know? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, I, at Boeing, I give presentations all the time, and, you know, I just get up on stage, and I just, you know, I just do my thing and walk off, and sure, I might screw it up, but I don't know. I, I just, I don't get nervous. And I was blown away by that, because <laughs> I'm, I'm extroverted, I'm the one cracking the jokes, I'm the one getting on stage. He, he never chose to get on stage, he never wanted to, but the times when he was forced to, 
he didn't have any nervousness. And I thought like, well, wait a second. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. And I think it's, I think it's because of, of what I was talking about earlier in terms of the narcissistic catch 22. Um, I, there's so many different stories, but just to highlight for my life, um, I started off playing trumpet, and for whatever reason, I, I got pretty good compared to my classmates, and so I became like first chair trumpet in band when I was a kid. And Huber was the drummer in the band, by the way, um, or the playing the triangle. Nice. And and I would get solos, and I was terrified. Um, there was I had a solo that I was given. At the end of sixth grade, we, we there was going to be this huge concert that involved all the elementary schools in the area, and it was going to you know involve all the it was going to be hundreds of people. They were combining several different bands together, and I had this trumpet solo, and the the director told me I was going to do it like I don't know five months in advance, and it was the easiest. It wasn't even uh, really a solo; it was just like a, a trumpet part. It was probably like three or four notes that were extended whole notes. You know, it it, it had it, it was easy. It was very simple, completely within my range. And I'll just never forget that every night, almost as I was falling asleep in the sixth grade, I would I was in terror of oh, man. of that uh, future event. You know, just just staring in the darkness, going like, "Oh my God, I have that solo coming up," and then. I was practicing just before going on stage and the director came and said, okay, are you guys ready? And I must have looked terrified. And he asked me, oh, are you, you know, are you kind of freaking out about this? And I was like, uh, yeah. And he's like, oh, well, you know, you don't have to play it if you don't want to. It's not a big deal. <laughs> and I remember just being so angry at him. It was like, oh, why didn't God. you tell me this in the beginning? Because I would have, I would have said no, you know, I, I'm a good boy and I do what I'm told. And so uh, what you're telling, I, you're telling me now that I could not do it. Like it would be stupid for me not to do it at this point. I've suffered so much for the past five months. Like, of course I'm going to do it now, but why didn't you ask me that in the first place? Cause I would have declined, you know what I mean? And so uh, that this was 40 years ago. I can remember, I can remember staring into the darkness at night, you know, in my bed. Uh, you know, and it was a very, it, that's the amount of performance anxiety that I've had, you know, for my entire life. I can tell you all these other stories. Then um, I started wrestling and uh, I've, I played a lot of sports growing up, you know, track, baseball, basketball, football, um, volleyball, all these kinds of things. But wrestling, for whatever reason, it was probably my best sport. I was, uh, you know, pretty dominant in my league and uh, really enjoyed being good at wrestling. But wrestling is not a team. It's a team sport of sorts, but in terms of the matches, it's one-on-one, and as everyone knows. And that was so performance anxiety provoking to me that, uh, again, I remember um, the right after a wrestling match, I would be okay, like that night. And, right. I, and I would sleep well. The very next day, I would start worrying about the next match, which was six days in it, you know, because it was every Friday <laughs> oh. or so. And so for six nights out of the oh. week, I'd be staring into the darkness going, oh, my God, I have this wrestling match coming up, even though I was dominant in the league. Like, and that was part of the problem right. was like, was I was, ex- I was always expected to win. And so... It, it it was tremendous pressure. It was like I couldn't just 
relax yeah. and and do the thing it was like i better fucking win and of, of course it was all internal pressure no one was no one was putting pressure on me to do that you yeah. know and so i stopped wrestling you know halfway through uh my you know sort of scholastic career as a wrestler because i couldn't handle the anxiety at night oh and, man and so i switched to basketball which i'm not good at but i'm good i'm good <laughs> enough to be on a team but but it but i'm not and and average wise in terms of my peers i'm not i'm not very good at basketball but i played basketball because it was just it, there it's was a team sport yeah it was team sport it, it, it's like when you fuck up it's it's <clears> like <throat> not noticeable or you're not on the spot you're it, not every eye is on you that kind of thing fast forward to um uh just some other stories here about my performance anxiety the very first time i sang in front of a crowd um was a talent show in high school and I, I had a girlfriend who was she was like a little Barbara Streisand people always compared her to Barbara Streisand and she was a beautiful singer and that's like all she ever did was sing 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 and she was older than me and she roped me into singing Somewhere Out There by uh, you know that the you know Somewhere Out There Beneath the Pale Blue Sky isn't that from is that from West Side Story? No, it's from a cartoon. In, in the, oh, Five O Goes West. <coughs> yeah, or in, in the, whatever that was. Yeah, yeah, in the eighties, and uh, Linda Rodstad and um, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember the fellow's name. And Kibo Bryson or something. Maybe. Or Aaron Neville. Uh, no, not yeah. Aaron Neville. Um, not Aaron Neville. But I, uh, I was a jock. Like I said, I played sports, and I wasn't a singer, and did not consider myself to be a singer or, or a drama person. I was, I was a jock. I was a football player, and and. Uh, but she roped me into singing this singing this song with her, <laughs> and um, it was the big finale to the talent show. You know, it was the last hurrah of the entire night, and it was supposed to be like the, the sort of the gem of the night. And I was sitting off stage again, just because of my performance anxiety. I'm I'm sitting off stage, uh, just terrified of it's coming, it's coming. Oh, oh my god, it's coming, and uh, and. I would pace around the school in the back of the, you know, the stage just going like, how do I get out of this? You know, what, oh, poor what if I, what if I claimed I was mugged, you know, and, and I, <laughs> and I couldn't go on stage, you know, is there any way I can get out of this? Even though I had agreed, you know, and practiced and all this kind of stuff, but it was just like that, that physical terror where you're like, I get that it'll be okay. Of course, you know, I, I know that I'm not going to be, you know, tarred and feathered if this doesn't go well. But um, my body does not want to go on that stage. And then when I'm on the stage, of course, all the trembling and the sweating and the you can't think straight and just all that stuff. <laughs> Fast forward to uh, me being in a band like you um, in various bands and then in a band with you. Same thing. We'd practice. I would feel good. I wouldn't tremble. Get up on stage you know trembling and singing do not go well together and uh i would just it would it, you know i i want to give a good performance i want to perform as good as i can when i'm in my bedroom and it would just never work out that way and when you and i were in a band together i just felt like i was never a hundred percent when we were on stage in front of people um i was always like at 80 percent, and i was after shows i was always kind of bummed out about that and and oh. but you get used to it you know Okay. Yeah. Sorry, this is long, but I just want to. I just for the you performance anxiety people, I just want to talk about this. Um, teaching. When I started to teach, 
my my mentor, Paul David, he actually harangued me into teaching. I didn't want to teach. He actually basically tricked me into doing it. Um, I won't go into details, uh, but he basically tricked me into teaching. And the night before teaching my first lecture, I was pacing around my apartment thinking, again, how am I going to get out of this? I can't do this. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to fuck it up. I don't know what I'm doing. Why am I, you know, how, and this is only in front of, you know, 15 students. Right. And I, and I have my mentor there to, you know, chime in if he needs to. And there's, you know, it's pretty low expectations. I think it's, it's, but, but I was just utterly terrified, hyperventilating kind of experience, panicking. And I was this close, just like a, a hair width away from calling my mentor and saying, sorry, I can't do it. This is too much for me. And oh, wow. that would have completely changed the trajectory of my career and my life. Because if he, yeah. if, if him and I would have separate, because he, he might've been like, okay, um, you know, teaching, it's too much for you. I might not have ever worked at Antioch. I might not have developed the skills where I could actually become a podcaster, you know, as a, as an educator yeah. for, for many years, you, you just develop these skills in terms of how to, how to communicate about things. And, um, but something held me in there and what held me in there was like, I didn't want to disappoint my mentor. So, so I do the teaching and I'm, I'm sweating, I'm terrified, I'm trembling, I'm shaking, everything's terrible, but I made it through it. Well, that did not, that, that took away a lot of the performance anxiety as time went on. Um, and eventually I was teaching my own classes, but I still had massive fucking anxiety while I was teaching. Wow. For the first um, like 10 or 15 years. And I've, cause eventually I went to my physician and said like, do you have anything? And they're like, well, there's this thing called a beta blocker and the beta blocker, uh, ramps down your nervous system so that you don't, you don't have as much shakiness and your heart doesn't start pounding and you don't sweat as much. You, you still might be intellectually scared of the situation, but you don't have those physical symptoms because, you know, it creates this feedback loop where, you're on stage and you're, you start to shake and now you're worried that people can see you shaking and that causes <laughs> you to be more anxious, which causes more shaking. Um, so I took beta blockers for the first 12 years of teaching. Wow. Yeah. So you would think after five years of being a professor <laughs> that I would be comfortable enough to teach a class and not be freaking out. That was not the case. I took beta blockers every time I taught probably for the first 12 years of teaching. Oh my God. That was a lot of beta blockers. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was the only time I ever took the beta blockers. It wasn't like there were other contexts that I needed it. You know, it was just always before yeah. teaching. And uh, so, yeah, I get the performance anxiety thing, man. Like, um, and it was a really big day when I was like, wait, I don't think I need these beta blockers anymore to teach. I, I must have crossed this threshold. And I'm a therapist. I know how to treat my own anxiety. I know how to categorize these things. I know how to do physical mindfulness to relax my body. I know all the tricks. I know all the things. I've been in therapy. I've talked about it. I know all the things and yet had no power over mm-hmm. my bodily reaction in situations like that. And the only thing that um, got rid of it was just fucking repetition. And so getting back to you and me, Berto, was in the beginning, I, you were less nervous on stage than I was. Well, in the intervening years that um, our band, you know, dissolved, I've done a lot more on stage performing than I think you have. 
Um, And because of that repetition and that acclimation and habituation, the the student has surpassed the master in this way and in, in that i've noticed that when you and i perform together musically you're you're more nervous than i am when i get on stage um which uh i i i never noticed before because you were always cooler on stage than i was but then you know <laughs> in the past 5 years when there's been musical performances i'm like oh alberto you know it looks like he's he's got a little he's nervous. yeah he's got a little nervousness in that in a way that yeah. I don't feel anymore because of just the sheer amount of repetition that I've done. So, so a couple of things. Uh, when you and I started playing, it was actually after a stint where I had been playing a ton, and, and, and I mean, like when when you and I started playing with Shun, for example, because um, when, when I when I when I first started playing in a band was with my first version of Missionary, and uh, I didn't realize that the way to do it wasn't to play out all the time. So we were playing out like three times a week at, at, um, at places and, uh, and practicing like five times a week. So we were playing so much and playing in so many places in front of people and hostile audiences, like at hell's, uh, hell's kitchen down in Tacoma, which was like a heavy metal bar and stuff. Oh, and that, that stint was after I had done a stint of like two years of, doing open mic nights constantly where I couldn't really play. And I like, I mean, I was, I was putting myself out so much and, and in ways that I was very underprepared. So I feel like I had shocked my system into like, at least pretending I was okay. So by the time you Shun and I started playing, I already had that under my belt. And then we started playing. But then when we were playing with missionary, we were so well rehearsed when it was the, the best version of missionary, as I'd say it, we were so well rehearsed that um, even though we had the keyboards and the stuff, like I actually felt the most probably prepared for those shows that I've ever done, and that really helped me. But even in, in in spite of that, and you might have not seen it as much internally, I was still struggling a bit. Especially, I was always worried about my voice because I wrote songs that were a little high and all these things. That that was all still worrying me. Um, when I started playing with Plastic Polly. At first, we practiced like crazy. So that very first show you saw us at, that was at um, uh, the <clears throat> the place uh, by the freeway there. Yeah, um, yeah. That one actually, I was I was pretty good because we had been practicing constantly, like nonstop. So I felt pretty good. But after that, our our performances were few and far between, and we weren't practicing as much. And so, yeah, absolutely. So one thing that that is directly correlated for me is. The better prepared I am, and this is like obvious, but the better prepared I am, the more it helps me handle those feelings. And uh, that's all I can say. I, I also say about sports, dude, I actually had performance anxiety playing basketball because back in junior high, I played basketball and I actually was a really great defender and I was really fast and I would not tire. But every time I got the ball to make a shot, it was performance anxiety craziness, and I would miss so often just from that because I'm like, oh god, all eyes are on me, all eyes are on me. Whereas when I was defending and just running and passing, I, I you know, I'm like, okay, it's a team, it doesn't matter. <laughs> right, uh, and so I'm glad you're, you know, you're talking about that. That's interesting. I don't think we've ever explicitly talked about this before, but it's interesting for you know, because to to be side by side with you on stage. And um, to have never really talked about this explicitly is interesting. Yeah. Um, 
Now, I will say that last year I gave a presentation at a convention, and I had the shakiness again, like tremendously, like in my voice. And it was fucking embarrassing because I had colleagues who I teach with at the university in the audience. It was just a bunch bunch of strangers. I'd be like, you know, whatever. But I had people whom... I, I guess I, you know, I want to impress on some level, uh, and yeah. and for the first, uh, you know, three fourths of the presentation, it was probably noticeable that I was nervous about something that I had. Uh, it was a presentation I had practiced over and over and over again. I don't think I've ever been as like well prepared <laughs> for a presentation, and it was actually a presentation about how to use social media to enhance your practice as a therapist. I actually made it into an episode uh, last year. And it's something that I know a lot about. It's basically like, right. how do you podcast as a therapist? Like, I could talk off the top of my head. And yet, yeah, my body just was not happy with being on stage. And there weren't even that many people in the audience is the thing. It was just... Oh, wow. Um, I still, when I'm at meetings at the university with people that I know and love and trust... And it's time for me to introduce myself, you know, like there's a new professor and like everyone's going around introducing themselves. My body freaks out in a situation like that. It's abs- <laughs> it's absurd. So, you know, uh. now for people who don't have performance anxiety, you know, fuck you. But for people who do, <laughs> like I, I, I want to model like it's, an, it's a somewhat intractable uh, condition, you know. A lot of people say like, well, you know, just imagine everyone's naked or, you know, just, <laughs> just be yourself or, you know, do deep breathing exercise. Fuck you, people. Like – I'm a therapist. I know what to do. I have done the things. It has not cured it. There's something deeper or something more just physiologically baseline about this that it it, it just it, – it's and it's annoying. You know, it just gets in your way. So an honest patron, I get it. Now, conceptualization, that's what you're asking about. So one way to conceptualize it is we've all been humiliated growing up, and those are – semi, if not full-on traumatic events for us, where our full body has this visceral negative reaction to being humiliated on stage. You know, we, um, you know, we farted in class and everyone laughed at us. We, um, you know, did something that everyone thought was stupid, or we tripped while we were trying to play soccer, or, um, or we talked at the dinner table and, Everyone in the family laughed at you at something you said. You said the wrong word or something. So we have physical neuronal realities that will kick in when we're in situations that are emulative or at least you know uh, reminiscent of those early humiliation traumas. And if you've had a lot of humiliation traumas, then you're more likely to have what I imagine to be more visceral reaction when you got on stage. Also... That for some people, they're just more anxious. You know, they just have, say, a more right. more active, nervous, anxious uh, system in their brains. Um, you and I are two of those people, and you, you tend to have all the anxieties. Um, when when you have, if you have one, then you're susceptible to all of them because they all involve the fear center of your brain just being overactive and and easily triggered. And so you can have anxiety about anxiety, which causes even more anxiety. <laughs> also, it it makes sense that uh, it would be a normal bodily reaction for all of us. We probably evolved this uh, sense that if we get rejected by the tribe, that's a threat to our survival. You know, 200,000 years ago, if the tribe 
thought you were unworthy as a whole, you were potentially left in the woods alone to die and wouldn't get, you know, food, wouldn't get protection from the herd. And so we likely evolved a mechanism that makes us all, whether it kicks in on performance anxiety or not, extremely interested in not making a fool out of ourselves in front of a large group of people, even though intellectually we're like, well, who the fuck cares? It doesn't, it, it's that, you know, it doesn't apply anymore. I, I still have my job. I still have my people, but we have that, that sort of heuristic in our physiology. Another uh, conceptualization of this is that um, we lack familiarity and exposure to certain things, which I'll get to in a second. Um, and then, of course, the conceptualization of narcissism and perfectionism, which I was talking about earlier. So the cure is that I have found for myself are threefold. One is cognitive solutions. You got to push back on the anxiety as best you can. And an honest patron, you're, you're doing this to yourself as well. You're just like, what's the big deal? You know, I, I can do this, you know, so saying things to yourself that everything's going to be okay. It doesn't matter if you make a fool out of yourself. I'm actually, I'm going to make this, I'm going to make this a fourfold thing, um, uh, is talking about it. Um, I, I think talking about it as you're leading up to it helps. Like, um, I find this really true for a lot of anxious situations for me is when I'm anxious, I tend to shut down, but that doesn't help. And so it helps if I'm anxious to just the first person I can, I just tell like, like I, I'm not excited about needles when I go to the doctor and <laughs> the phlebotomist, you know, the person who has to draw the blood or something, I find 90% of the anxiety goes away or I don't know, half if I make a joke to the phlebotomist that I'm terrified, you know, I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'll just be like, so just to let you know. Um, needles really freak me out. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. There's some, I, I'm kind of a wuss. When <laughs> I might it, pass out here. <laughs> yeah, I, I say I, I have. I let it out of the bag, and immediately I feel myself less anxious. Um, the the second thing, so 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 cognitive things, talking about it, and then age. I think just getting older helps. Um, uh, for people who suffer from this kind of anxiety, I found that a lot of people, as they get older, it gets better. Maybe not always. But the fourth thing is the most important thing, which is habituation, which is why I have I don't have to take uh, beta blockers when I teach anymore. And now when I get on stage to sing and play guitar and you know and do music and stuff, I'm like probably two percent as anxious as I, as I used to be. The reasons for that is is reps, man. If you do anything enough, in all likelihood, and it and it's not overwhelmingly negative for you. In all likelihood, your body just gets used to it. Stand-up comics talk about this all the time. It's like you just got to do the reps. You know, you got to bomb uh, a bunch of times right. on stage before you just become used to the fact that sometimes you're going to bomb. And it and your body now what they'll say is you just get used to it. But what's what was really happening is your your physiology is getting used to it. For me, for example, I'm I'm not excited about needles. But every time I have a needle experience, I'm less and less. Um, anxious about it. And if I was to uh, have a needle, you know, experience every day for 30 days, the 31st day, my body will probably have no reaction to it. And I, <laughs> and I don't have to do anything other than just habituate myself to the, to the, to the stimulus. And so just if anonymous patron, if you want to accelerate your 
recovery, you know, all the conceptualizations are interesting, but probably the most useful thing is just is just get up on stage, keep doing it. The you know the first hundred times you do that, you're going to be shaky. It's going to be somewhat humiliating. You're not going to like it. But the hundred and first time, you're going to be a lot less shaky than the first time. In all likelihood, the one thing, the one piece of advice I would have given myself as I was starting out is uh, keep things very simple first. Meaning, do things that you can do uh, comfortably rather than throw your throwing yourself into the deep end of the pool while you're trying to also deal with the anxiety. Because I, I, you know, if I hadn't had to deal with so many variables, I could have been more focused on like, well, I know my one guitar part or whatever and I, I I know I memorize the lyrics I don't have to deal with all these lights or all these special effects or any of that stuff yeah very very important all right let's take a break and we get back let's answer one more email from fa- famous patron Lynn and what do you say let's do it all right we're back from the break so Berto if you were on stage and having massive performance anxiety and you were trying to tell the audience to become a patron of the podcast what would that sound like well see i'd be trying to sing my song about it and it would go something like this i've come here tonight to ask (coughs) sorry to ask you to do to ask you to i forgot to to please patronize oh god just give us money please god i'm out of here All right. Famous patron Lennon asks us a question. Is it a good idea when breaking up with someone after a relationship of less than a year to just cut off all contact? Uh, So it's a pretty specific question. So when you're in a relationship with someone of less than a year and you're breaking up with someone, is it a good idea to just cut all contact with that person? Berto, (laughs) Berto, what do you think? Like cold so, turkey, no contact. Sounds like a very specific question. Very uh, specific pa- question, yeah. yeah. Like he's dealing with it or something. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, the, <clears throat> like on the one hand, I always find it sort of bizarre to cut all contact with someone. Uh, I mean, uh, unless they've like really done you wrong or something, I suppose. I, I've always find it very odd. Like I've never really understood the dynamics of this where – you spend, let's say, uh, even just, let's say, three months with someone and you have these meaningful conversations and you have these great times and then, you know, it didn't work out and, and so you move on and then you never talk to them again. You never see them again. But let alone if you spent like, you know, a year with someone, that a year, that's a long time and you went on these two trips and you did that one thing and nope, you never... And, and the reason I find it so bizarre is because I, I've kept in contact with my friends from when I was little, uh, and I still remember people that even though I wasn't like particularly close friends with, they were in my classes when I was little. And if I ran into them on the street, I'd be like, "Oh my gosh, how are you? How's your life?" And all these things. I don't go out of my way to reach out to them and stuff like that. Um, so, the idea of cutting all contact with someone that you were so close to doesn't register for me but but i realized that it might be healthier in some cases so i don't know yeah i agree i have a very similar value that you do of like hey you know we had a relationship we had a connection we should have some kind of ongoing relationship you know depending on the situation i, I just completely uh 
cutting off contact just because society says that's a clean break and you're supposed to do that doesn't seem human to me. Um, but what I'll say in general to everyone, because that, that's just me and you and our values, I think it really depends. Of course, it depends. Yeah. And there's two main paths to choose from, and there's, there's pros and cons to either one. And you just have to decide for yourself, Lyndon, you know, what makes sense to you. Of course, uh, the two different paths are breaking up amicably and staying in contact, and then the other is to uh, cut all contact. To, to have contact... Uh, you continue your relationship. The pros are you preserve the relationship, which was important. You know, you liked this person a lot at one point and you you preserve that, you know, that you're no longer having sex. Probably you're no longer romantic feelings. You're no longer texting each other all the time, but you still share things in common. You share stories. You share, uh, you know, a history together. And, and we need all the relationships we can we can build. You know, um, you might even become best friends with some of these people. You can vent feelings to them uh, when things come up, like soon after, like uh, maybe the breakup was hard or maybe there was some hurt feelings. And it's a, it's a huge pro to be able to like say, hey, you know, that thing you did to me really hurt my feelings. And I know we're broken up, but can you apologize for that again? And that can be a wonderful thing for emotional health, for our ability to trust other people, for grieving. Um, so that's that's something that a lot of people uh, overlook. Also, yeah. when you continue a relationship with someone and, and you like them after breaking up, particularly if they dumped you, you have an increased hope for humanity and a better chance of being able to trust future partners. Whereas if you just cut off all contact, there's this risk that you're going to be like um, building up anger, building up a narrative of the person that's that's quite negative. Of course, that's not um, automatic, but I see people do that. They're just like, you know, fuck him, and you know, I'm never going to talk to him again. And okay, if you need to do that, um, then of course. But there's a con to that of like, um, one, you're going to think that people can't be trusted because you really trusted this person. And now you have this narrative of the person that is like, they're the devil, you know, there's a terrible person that did all these horrible things. Um, so you're going to have a hard time trusting other people, but also you're going to have a hard time trusting yourself because you're the one who fell in love with the person. And if your narrative of that person is they were the devil, then you're not going to trust yourself. So there's a lot of pros to, you know, staying together. Now, the cons to staying in a relationship, being a friend, is jealousy. You're going to see them on Facebook with new partners, potentially Instagram. You might even have dinner parties where you see them with a new partner or vice versa, where you have a new partner and it triggers jealousy in the other person. And that can be, you know, really hard. The other thing is that you might have a lot of triggered feelings, like you really miss that person. And when you have conversations with them, you're just like, oh man, like I really, you know, and it just prolongs the grief process. Um, and another con is you're going to get odd looks from friends because people tend to judge this unfairly. And so I guess that's a con, although that's kind of bullshit. Now, if you cut all contact, then the pros are is you're less likely to get triggered, which is a which is a legit reason to cut all contact with a former partner. If you find that you're being frequently triggered. You know, it's six months later and you you see them on Facebook and you're just like massive waves of of pain and um, and hurt. Now, 
maybe that's a good thing. Maybe you're grieving and, and you should be feeling those feelings. But, you know, there's sort of a balance there. Um, and, of course, the cons are you aren't able to um, have conversations about the relationship um, in terms of the grieving process, and you might lose hope in other humans. Now, both paths are fine. Um, I, I encourage people to consider the continuing of the relationship more often than they do. I feel like people in general tend to default to cutting all contact when I don't think that that's necessarily in everyone's best interest all the time because culture says that what that's what you're supposed to do. Um, you know, there, there's this, if you see two people together and, uh, or I guess more specifically, you're in a relationship with someone and that person gets together with their ex partner. Um, there tends to be this thing like, why are you getting together with your ex-partner? Like, that's that's not normal. You know, the, you're supposed to cut ties with your ex-partners. And so I find that um, there's just this default to, like, you know, clean cut and never have any contact with him ever again. Um, so, you know, I encourage people to think about it because, again, f- for the main feature of however long it takes, for the two of you to actually have conversations post-breakup, about your feelings about the breakup, you know, yep. uh, you did this to me. I'm sorry I did that to you. Um, though, you know, I have something to say that I need you to hear and like, do you understand what, what I went through? I think all of us can think of things that we would like to say to an ex-partner that we would want them to hear and that we would like an apology for. And we never did that because we were doing the quote unquote clean break. You know what I'm saying, bro? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got some gripes of wrath about this topic now that I think about it because one thing that's happened to me multiple times, I don't know why, but it's happened to me multiple times, is a person will come out from from my past and they have just recently broken up with their husband or their boyfriend from a long time or something and we will reconnect. Uh, sometimes it's happened serendipitously. Sometimes it was on purpose or whatever. And we'll reconnect and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, Wow. Like this person's back in my life and we're friends again and then we'll talk and all these things. And we even say like, oh, we shouldn't like, we shouldn't let this happen again. Like we shouldn't cut contact. Then they get into a new relationship. They disappear. They ghost me again. And and it's like, I'm re-traumatized, you know? It sucks. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why that could be happening, but definitely one of them is that their new partner is threatened and doesn't want that person to have contact with you, which again, there's a lot of paths. There's a lot of different ways to live. Um, but I, I just want people to think about their needs and don't be influenced by society. And, you know, like for example, some of the, these women, uh, who have come back in your life and ghosted you, there's at least some of them, if not all of them, where if a therapist could sit down with everyone and be like, okay, uh, woman, um, are you, do you want to be with Umberto again? No, I don't want to be with him again. <laughs> He's an old friend of mine. Um, okay, uh, you know, new boyfriend to woman. Um, you know, do you need reassurance about the fact that your significant other really loves you? You know, like really working on the right, jealousy right. so that we don't have to, arbitrarily just cut off relationships as a solution to something that's really deeper, which is the, you know, bids for reassurance about love and and dedication and loyalty. Um, So, yeah. 
All right, Birdo. So what's the final word on this episode? The final word. The final word. The final word. Well, I'll say that uh, if you're anxious about performing, then uh, maybe reconnect with an old love and perform in front of them first, and that'll calm your nerves. <laughs> uh, but in all seriousness, uh, I think, uh, yeah, like it. There's a lot of things that we're we've all experienced. Not everyone has the same experiences, but for me, regarding the the performance anxiety, I think you hit it on the nail that repetition is the key. So, rep- repeat, 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 and then that'll minimize your symptoms. Uh, all right. No well, that, comment on the rest of this stuff. <laughs> all right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please, please take care of yourself and other people because you deserve it. Thank you.